Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. You can't really tell people to stop buying air conditioners because it's such a basic thing when people are feeling too hot. They get nervous, the crime goes up. Actually, there have been studies showing the relation between air conditioning and corruption. So it's one of these things that you can't be without, you can't do without, but you need to somehow solve and to improve. The question is, how can we use the data and the breadth of data that we have today to make this opportunity really work in terms of climate while keeping people comfortable? Hi, everyone. I know it's winter time for many of you, but that doesn't mean we can ignore how cities around the world are heating up and how air conditioning is a growing contributor to climate change. Air conditioning is responsible for about 4% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Today, about 20% of electricity used in buildings comes from operating air conditioners. And with cities heating up and more people able to afford this technology, air conditioning emissions are expected to double by 2030 and triple by 2050. To understand this problem and some promising solutions, I sat down with Matthias Roth and Ron Roth. Matthias is a professor of geography and urban climatology at the University of Singapore. Ron is the founder of a startup called Sensibo that's using data and AI to improve the efficiency of air conditioners around the world. No family relation between the two Roths, but a shared interest in how cities are heating up and what we can do about it. We talk about urban heat islands, how cities are responding, the growth of air conditioning, Sensibo's solution to make them smarter and more efficient, what else needs attention, and much more. Wherever you are, warm up and stay cool with this one. Enjoy. Ron and Matthias, welcome to Invest in Climate. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, great to have you here. You, funnily enough, share a last name, but I understand you're not related. Or might this be a case of long-lost cousins actually getting reunited through a podcast? Not as far as I know, Jason, but I think you're right. We are not related. However, I usually do feel a special affinity towards people with the same name. (laughs) Fair enough. Great. Well, let's get started first with some brief introductions. Matthias, will you kick us off and just share briefly about your background and what you currently focus on? Sure, yes. I'm originally from Switzerland, where I finished my first degree at ETH in Natural Sciences and Physical Geography. Thereafter, I moved to Vancouver in Canada to complete the PhD degree at the University of British Columbia in Atmospheric Sciences with a focus on urban climatology. Thereafter, I was working in Japan for a few years as a postdoctoral researcher, went back to Canada, and then about 
a little bit more than 20 years ago, I finally moved to Singapore, and I'm still in Singapore, where I'm a professor in urban climatology in the Department of Geography at the National University of Singapore. My current focus is on teaching, as our teaching semester has just started today. And I'm also doing a fair bit of university and research administration since, since I'm involved in a number of international climate organizations. And I'm also helping to run a climate journal. But in terms of research, my focus is on measuring and modeling the so-called urban heat island. This is a so-called urban heat island phenomenon, which can be defined as the extra warmth of a city in relation to its undeveloped rural surroundings. And this extra warmth can, in extreme cases, be up to 10, 12 degrees C under certain conditions. I'm also interested in how this local warming which is actually a local climate change, compares to anthropogenic global warming, which is the background global warming everybody is talking about. Great. Fantastic. Looking forward to diving more into the topics and really understanding urban heat a bit more. But let's continue with the introductions. Ron, over to you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you're working on climate currently. I am originally from a computer science technical background. I was doing mostly algorithms with data science, basically. I did a lot of work in different areas in startups and corporates from autonomous driving in the days where it was still in its infancy and it wasn't even called that way to doing various algorithms for advertising in corporates. I was in Yahoo when it was still a big corporate. And then about 10 years ago, I decided uh, I wanted to really focus on doing something on my own. And together with my co-founder, Omar, we were looking for ideas that would not only be beneficial, but also would be something good for the world. Naturally, a lot of the, the ideas were around climate, but actually one of the last ideas was we sort of stumbled on air conditioners and heaters, and it sort of checked all the boxes we had in terms of being a very traditional industry where data science was really missing. And with a huge impact that we discovered about the, the environment, once we saw that, we found it sensible. That was 10 years ago. And the idea is to see how data and AI changes in our climate for the better. Now, today, I'm the CEO of Sensible, and we already had a, a pretty nice impact. We are tackling this problem from various aspects. Of course, from energy, from comfort, everything that has to do with smart air conditioning and the climate angle was was the reason for starting the company. So it's in the essence of everything we do. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to learning more about Sensibo as well. Let's get started and learn more about the problem at hand. And part of this problem, Matthias, you started to describe as urban city centers heating up and the needs for more efficient forms of cooling. Matthias, help us understand this problem a bit more. Everyone listening to the podcast understands that the world is heating up, but tell us about how it's impacting cities in particular and what the real-life implications will be. One way to understand the problem is by imagining that cities are islands floating in a sea of warm air. So if the surrounding air temperature is increasing, the overall air temperature in cities will also increase. But at the same time, cities are themselves areas of islands of warm air, hence the expression or definition urban heat island. So therefore, temperatures in cities are affected by two processes. On one hand, by the global background temperature, which is increasing, 
And on the other hand, by the local air temperature increment caused by the presence of the city. And this increment is on top of or in addition to the background situation. So this means that populations in cities are hit by a double whammy. On one hand, it's the background global warming. On the other hand, it's the locally produced urban heat island, which is in addition to the background global warming. So what are the implications in real life of this heat excess? Just going to go through some of the potential or some of the known impacts, which include in terms of biodiversity and ecology, for example, that temperatures affect the growth potential of certain types of vegetation or they affect how much CO2 can be absorbed by a certain type of vegetation. The air temperature in cities more generally actually affects the blooming of plants. The blooming of plants has been recorded to start earlier in cities than outside of cities due to the higher temperatures in cities. Or higher temperatures also affect the spread of temperature-sensitive virus diseases due to mosquitoes because their range may become larger and they may become more prevalent. And here I'm thinking of vector-borne diseases such as dengue or malaria, which are a real problem in tropical cities. And for example, this is a hot research topic here in Singapore where we have dengue fever. And we want to know to what extent dengue is dependent on the local air temperature and how this will change with increasing air temperatures. So this is one of the implications. Another implication, of course, is that extreme temperatures can increase the risk of occupational health problems. There is elevated heat stress associated with increasing temperatures, which is a challenge for vulnerable communities. Extreme heat in cities... If it's combined with high humidity and or poor urban air quality is also increasing health risks and mortality rates. And finally, we have the thermal environment, which is influencing the level of energy consumptions related to space heating or cooling. And the latter is one of the topics of this podcast. So clearly there are serious consequences of urban heat. Matthias, perhaps it's obvious to people why cities might be warming more than other areas, but we shouldn't miss the chance to hear your expertise on this matter. Why is it that cities heat up even more than the surrounding areas? Well, if you look at the science of urban heat island generation, it's actually pretty well understood, and it has been understood for quite a long time as well. This is going back more than uh, 150 years in time, or almost 200 years actually, to be precise. I'd say there are three main reasons for this. The first main reason is the prevalence of hard surfaces in the city as opposed to natural vegetated surfaces. Cities are primarily built of concrete and asphalt, and these are materials with a high heat capacity. That means they are very efficient in absorbing the heat gained during daytime from the solar radiation. So they absorb, they store the heat within the buildings, within the parking lots, within the road surfaces, and at night they release that heat. So they warm up during daytime and they release the heat at night like an oven. So the urban heat island itself is actually primarily a nighttime phenomenon. So on top of this, we have the particular structure of city surfaces, the morphology of the cities, which make it difficult for cities, for these urban convoluted urban surfaces to emit to release that heat back out into space at night so they have problems to cool down an open flat vegetated surface can relatively easily emit heat back up into space and cool down but the convoluted 
urban surface with dense buildings with urban canyons will trap the heat at night. So all the heat that's been stored during daytime actually has problems to escape into space at night. So the heat is retained. The third main reason is the addition of so-called anthropogenic heat. So this is man-made heat to the environment from activities such as cars, activities such as space cooling, space heating, industries, which add additional heat to what has been already stored during daytime from the incoming solar radiation. Thanks for the explanation, Matthias. I suspect this is something that cities are paying a lot of attention to. Is this something that they're working on? What are some of the ways that they're trying to deal with urban heat? They're definitely interested in this. They're definitely dealing with this. It has become a really hot research topic, actually not just a research topic, also a hot topic to be discussed within city governments. Perhaps just from my own experience here in Singapore when I arrived about 20 years ago, urban climatology was not on the agenda at all. There were only very, very few people working on this topic. Climate change wasn't really on the agenda either. Within the last 20 years, and primarily within the last maybe 8 to 10 years, this has become a major focus of city governments here and uh, research activities. And a lot of um, funding is poured into related research by the government and related institutions. Most city governments across the world, I think, are aware of this issue and they try to do something about it. One should also say that not every city is affected in the same way. So an urban heat island or excess heat may be actually beneficial in a city located in a more northern or southern latitude climate. But if the background temperatures are already very high, like in the Middle East, for example, or in many tropical cities, an additional one or two degrees C on average across the entire year is, of course, massive for all the different reasons which I've mentioned before. Thank you. Ron, let's turn to you. Hotter cities mean more use of air conditioning to address the health risks that Matthias mentioned, but also for comfort and productivity. Traditional air conditioning units are not only energy intensive, but also use hydrofluorocarbon refrigerants. Tell us about the problem that air conditioners pose to climate change. Air conditioners basically don't really cool, right? They don't generate coolness. They pump heat outside of the indoor space, outside. And so in addition to all the problems that Matthias mentioned, one of the main problems is that the more it is hotter outside, the harder it is to cool the house. Hard means wasting energy. The first thing is that ACs consume a lot of energy. And the higher temperature difference, the higher the energy they consume. If you look today globally, we have around 1.5 billion air conditioners, with some people claiming it will go to as high as 5 billion in, in just 20 years. And to understand why the reason for that growth is, is that if you look at most of the economies that are developing in the world, with huge populations, India, China, all of the southeastern area region, some places in Africa, these are hotter places. So air conditioning is going to be more and more important. And when you think of the temperature difference between the cities, so the fact that we live more and more in urban areas means that the surrounding becomes hotter. The heat of cities has a direct influence on the energy consumption of uh, air conditioners. So the idea is that we have a big problem. And on the other hand, it's one of these problems, and you mentioned it also shortly, 
where you can't really tell people to stop buying air conditioners because it's such a basic thing when people are feeling too hot. They get nervous, the crime goes up. Actually, there have been studies showing the relation between air conditioning and corruption. So it's one of these things that you can't be without, you can't do without, but you need to somehow solve and to improve. You also mentioned the HFCs, which are the, the AC refrigerants. That's another problem for the environment because these uh, supposedly closed circuits, gases, they always release in the end to the atmosphere. They are amazing greenhouse gases. They're about thousands of times more potent than CO2. And that's another big issue. So ACs are bad in even another way. That's the main thing is energy is, is going to exponentially grow as we see more air conditioners installed. And the other part of the equation, which is also worth mentioning, is that also in Europe and in the US, because of global warming, people buy more air conditioners. So air conditioners become more and more important, also for heating. So people start using it for heating. And the entire AC heat pump technology together is going to take more and more focus. There is one upside to this, by the way, and that means, at least in the heating side, it's because ACs are electric. So we're also seeing a move to electrification from gas, for example. So there is also some positive to the fact that people are using more ACs. But the question is, how can we use the data and the breadth of data that we have today to make this opportunity really work in terms of climate while keeping people comfortable? That's more or less the summary of how ACs impact the environment. Well, Ron, thank you for that overview of how air conditioners are affecting climate and the exponential growth that is expected. This creates a perfect segue to talk about Sensibo. Tell us about the company that you've been building and how it's addressing the problem of growing air conditioners. As I mentioned, Sensibo is about how can we make indoor climates more efficient by using data and AI. And we have developed primarily a controller that retrofits existing air conditioners to being connected and smart. I mean, when you think of an air conditioner like the one I have here in my room, when it's disconnected, it basically has two big disadvantages. One is it has only one temperature sensor. So it has very little data about the environment. It doesn't know anything about what's going on outside, who is in the house. It doesn't have any data. And the other one is that it has a very simple microcontroller with no memory. So it has no sensing, no memory, no computation. The idea is that by installing the sensible controller, people are able to, to fix that by getting it connected to the cloud. It's connected to the Internet of Things, and then it goes to the cloud. And there we're processing, today we're already processing about 1.5 billion data points every day. We're seeing like 1.3 million actions. So we're seeing a lot of data in our system. And that data allows us to design much better control algorithms. So that's what we do at Sensible. We do it retrofitting for existing air conditioners, which is a really important point because just waiting for all the new air conditioners to become smart is going to take a lot of time. It's a very costly thing, and people don't change their air conditioner until it's broken and totally dead, let's say. The other thing is we're also working with manufacturers to apply the same technology in uh, new models. We just had a significant partnership now with Fujitsu. So the idea is to really take this technology that's available today, and we see it in almost everywhere, and to revolutionize the way we control air conditioners, which really hasn't changed much in the last 50 years. 
fascinating. So in basic terms, you're really just taking dumb appliances and making them smart, helping them be able to collect and use data so that they can run more efficiently. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And we focused not just on any appliance, but on air conditioners because it's an appliance that is probably the only real consumer of electricity. I mean, except for EVs now, but it's really the only consumer of electricity in the house. There is a lot of potential to optimize it there. So it's not just taking appliances um, like a washing machine or uh, something like that, but an appliance that is very, very heavy energy consumer. And that it is sort of autonomous because you don't really want to control the air conditioner. You just want it to be comfortable and to save energy. So we have a lot of room for optimizing there. Fantastic. Tell us about your customers. Who are you reaching and how much scale have you achieved so far? Initially, we focused just on residential. Today, we also have a commercial system, but we're still, I'd say, 90% residential. We're today in more than a quarter million homes with a pretty big customer base. It's still nothing compared to the potential, but it's enough to get a lot of statistics and to really make an impact. I'd say our customers are very advanced people, usually very conscious about the environment and the energy, and they want to have it all. They want to be comfortable like everyone. 90% of them, for example, said that they are concerned about global warming and they care about their energy and where it comes from. One more thing is, by the way, a lot of them use heating also, not just for cooling. So more and more people use AC and heat pumps for heating and not just for cooling. So that's also an interesting trend. And as I said, there is also an opportunity with the prevalence of air conditioners because they are still better than gas heaters in a lot of ways. Great. Ren, tell us a bit more. You mentioned that you have reached about a quarter of a million units and that that's enough to start collecting data. Give us a sense of what kind of impact you're having and particularly how much energy you're able to help people save. Yeah, so we're seeing a benchmark of about 20%. Of course, it depends on the usage that you had before or how mindful you were of the air conditioners. But there is really not, not just one silver bullet about how we do this, but it's a lot of things. For example, before uh, we found the company, I used to always turn in the summer my AC on 60 Fahrenheit or 16 Celsius. And I wouldn't actually know that it becomes harder and harder to cool as you go down. So just finding that balance point and not just telling you to put it on 75, like it's a magic number because there is no magic number. It depends on the situation. Other things like helping people to know when they should clean the filters, that has like a 5% effect on energy. Sometimes we cool empty homes, empty rooms. We open the door or the window and we're still activating the air conditioners. So all these things actually sum up. And an interesting thing is that today, especially when you have more and more renewable energy in the grid, it's not just about saving energy, it's about knowing when to use it. And that's where smart indoor climate really can help us not just save energy, but in some cases to waste energy or to use energy when it's actually free. I mean, think of it that you have a lot of solar energy when it's hot, right? But then people come home, they turn on the air conditioner exactly at, in the evening when, it, when there is less solar available. So these kinds of optimizations have a lot of potential to save energy and by that, of course, to help the climate. Great. Thank you, Ren. Matthias, let's go back to you. I'm really curious to hear your reflection on this, the obvious growing need and growing ability to afford air conditioning around the world. And really, how are cities thinking about the tension between needing to massively cut their greenhouse emissions while also needing to help their communities stay cool? 
I wouldn't say there is necessarily a tangent between the two, as it is possible to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Because many of the energy-saving options or the adoption of so-called green energy solutions provide cooling benefits and vice versa. As mentioned before, to reduce AC will help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions are responsible for global warming. But this will also reduce rejection of heat into the atmosphere, in which case it will limit the local neighborhood scale warming. Hence, we try to get out of this uh, positive feedback loop Ran has been alluding to before. With increasing warming, we also need more AC use. And as long as the uh, energy of the ACs is coming from burning of fossil fuels, we will have increasing greenhouse gas emissions, which then will produce even more global warming. So we try to get out of that loop and we can do both at the same time. On the other hand, also, if we have more vegetated natural surfaces in a city, which is one of the mitigation options for the heat island, this will result in an overall cooler environment, which then again translates into less air conditioning usage. Hence, here we talk about co-benefits, which emerge by reducing the emission of greenhouse gases by trying to stay cool. So there's not necessarily a tension, but we can feed off two things on each other and we have these co-benefits, which we can work with. Matthias, thank you for the helpful context. Ron, I'm really curious for your thoughts on this. How do you see Sensibo's contribution to reducing the fast-growing impact of air conditioners? Is it simply that it needs to be part of a portfolio approach of moving to heat pumps, greening cities, and having smarter ACs? Yes, I think that the main thing is we need to work in parallel. Obviously, there are things that you can do also in making the ACs themselves more efficient. And a lot of work has been done in that respect. Ideas like taking some of the heat from the ground in uh, geothermal units or other ways. But the, the thing is that really developing these kinds of systems is going to require tens of years, like decades. We would need to do in parallel things in parallel. And whatever happens, Whatever, however, ACs become more efficient. We've come to realize, I think, in the past years especially, that energy is not free. It's not getting cheaper with time. There is always going to be that need to optimize the way we use energy, and it's always going to have an effect, both economical, but also an effect on the environment. So I think the big advantage of Sensible is that it really can help you save a significant portion of your energy on cooling and heating by using data, the same way that you, you use a GPS and it makes your way more efficient, you can still develop an electric car, right? But think of Sensible like as a way to cut costs without changing the core technology of air conditioning. Also, another aspect of, of how Sensible helps is also to understand that it's all about sensing. So, for example, through Sensible, we have this feature that helps you check how well your room is insulated. So actually design decisions of whether you should maybe do some work in insulating your home or maybe you should replace your air conditioners can be made by using data in a relatively low cheap unit like uh, Sensible without having to really make that decision blindfolded without the data. So I think just to summarize it, we should be in parallel with the long-term approach of improving the, the engineering and the science with the design of cities, which is definitely a long-term thing because replacing buildings is going to take forever. And with quicker sort of solutions like what we have with Sensible Controller. And together we can make it work. 
Let's talk for a minute about the features that make Sensibo stand out. I read that your devices have geofencing capabilities, for instance. Tell us about that and some of the other things that really make Sensibo unique. Geofencing is really powerful because it helps you automate the way your recognition works. You don't have to remember to turn it off or to forget it. So it definitely has an effect on energy. We do it both at the room level, if you have like an occupancy sensor that we have, or at the home. But there are a lot of other things. For example, the ability to, to trigger different actions of the air conditioners and to be able to uh, uh, get tips about energy, about how is your energy use good or not. So as I mentioned, I think before, it's not just one feature that helps you do that, but it's an overall system. Our vision is actually for the whole thing to be automatic, right? For you to be able to live in comfort and know that the AC is working efficiently. Today, I don't know, it's interesting in, in a lot of places in the world, it's, there is a trend of energy prices becoming dynamic by the hour, sometimes by the minute. And in that world, you really can't optimize without something automatic that really knows what is the energy price, when is energy available from renewables, and these kind of optimizations are the future of energy in general, but of air conditioning and heating as well. Well, the vision of this being automatically optimized based upon outside data, as well as your own usage habits and your location is really exciting. Tell us about how AI is contributing to this. I saw that you have an integration with OpenAI. I'm sure that there's more happening under the hood. Give us a sense of AI's role in enabling this vision that you've described. I've been in AI or machine learning and data science. I've been working in it in the past 25 years, probably. I've never been so excited about what is happening now in the field. I think, of course, there's lots of talk about it, about the risks and about uh, whether there's some hype and there is always some hype. But I do think that there is a big revolution in all aspects and that we will see more and more agents being created. And what we did with OpenAI was to, to think of how a climate agent can function. The first feature we launched was something that helps you find schedules based on your usage. I was pretty, pretty astonished at what we were able to achieve. And now we're actually working on a full automatic agent. And I think the LLM technology and the generative AI in general they have a new kind of decision-making that can happen without doing too many optimizations of specific parameters or reinventing the wheel each time. So we have today in the, the app, we just launched actually last week, the beta version of the full assistant. And you can actually tell it things like I'm feeling hot and it will adjust something in the background and will tell you why did it or why it chose to recommend a specific schedule or if your energy is not optimized. So there is someone actually there thinking for you. It's an AI. I think that this is a very exciting moment for a lot of industries, but also for ours. Thanks, Ron. Matthias, let's go back to you. And I'd love to zoom out again and hear your thoughts on the role of technology in addressing urban heat. You described before some really low-tech solutions of simply planting more vegetation to cool cities. But for high-tech, what's most exciting to you? And also, what limitations do you see? Honestly, I don't see a high-tech silver bullet solution on the horizon. I think what you termed low-tech is probably, it comes across as low-tech, but there is a lot of science that goes into these low-tech solutions. So let me just back up a little bit. So when we 
address urban heat excess, a major focus, as, as you mentioned before, is on nature-based solutions. And there is a reason for this as well, because we try to restore the environment with nature, and that makes sense on many levels. We talk about nature-based solutions. We talk about the so-called blue and green infrastructure, which means the provision of vegetated and water spaces to basically bring back these natural potential solutions into the urban space. Because it's really the absence of this which creates the urban heat excess. So if you bring this back, then we hope to be able to restore a natural balance again. Um, so I think this makes sense on a lot of levels. And there are actually social implications for this as well, to bring back nature and water and green and vegetation into the urban realm, because people just feel more happy. Crime rates go down. And from that point of view, we don't really need a high-tech solution. And I don't think there is, a, as I mentioned before, there is a high-tech solution on the horizon which can solve the problem. These nature-based solutions are not necessarily technological solutions, but as I mentioned, they do need solid science to justify which interventions work best under which conditions. For example, it's really important to recognize that solutions are scale-dependent. So it depends if you want to reduce the heat or the heat excess or the air temperature around a single building or across a neighborhood, or if you want to try to do this citywide. It also depends on the local background, of the, which is determined by the local climate setting, geographic setting. So a solution which works well in the tropics actually does not necessarily work well in a desert climate. Okay, there do exist some more technological or engineering-based solutions. For example, some of them include the development of reflective paints, which are shown to be successful in reflecting unwanted radiation energy back into space. As I mentioned before, it's the absorption of this energy by these concrete and asphalt surfaces, which really create, which are at the basis of the excess heat of the urban heat island in the case of city. So if you're able to actually reflect that energy back into space, we get rid of one of the initial problems, which sets up the uh, excess heat. And quite a bit of advances have been achieved in this space. Just think, for example, of a, a city in Greece. And there's a reason why many of these cities are painted white. This is just to reflect the energy back during daytime. So the surface cannot even heat up in the first place. There's a problem with painting everything white, of course, because it creates glare, it creates discomfort for people as well. It creates a radiation heat, which is also undesirable. But the new generation of paints which are created these days, they actually reduce this glare problem. So they can be applied at the larger scale and even closer to where the people live. So there's quite a bit of scope for uh, application of these reflective cool paints, so to speak. Other technological solutions include, of course, more efficient air conditioning solutions. And this is where RAN is working on. It makes total sense to have so-called smart sensors. But as I mentioned before, the heat emitted or rejected by the air conditioner condensers is a relatively small part across the entire city of the heat problem in cities. But still, this needs to be done or the adoption of district cooling instead of having individual air conditioners in individual buildings is also a possible way forward. 
And other adaptation options include the design and installation of shade structures and shelters in cities. Again, the idea is to protect people from the incoming solar radiation, to protect the surface from the incoming solar radiation, so things don't heat up. These are some of the solutions I'm aware of and urban climatologists work with. Thank you, Matthias. It's great to know that there are so many solutions that are now understood and being considered or deployed. Obviously, so much needs to happen. As we close out, let's give a final word on what needs to change. Despite all the progress that you're seeing, where's there a gap? We've talked about so many exciting developments, but what is it that you think isn't getting enough attention? And as Ron described, this is going to be a several decades long effort. Where do we need to start shifting our focus? Matthias, let's have you start briefly and then we'll go over to Ron. I think it is important to recognize that heat mitigation intervention methods should be adopted at the earliest possible opportunity during the planning and construction process of neighborhoods, of buildings, or of entire new cities, because entire new cities are in the process of being built right now. They have been built from scratch during the last 30 years, many of them in China. New cities will be built as well, and it's much cheaper and it's much more effective to think about climate-sensitive design at the planning and the construction process. This will be much more efficient than having to retrofit the building or a city uh, neighborhood to achieve some reduction in air temperature. Respective intervention scenarios can also be evaluated or should be evaluated and tested before implementation. And this is possible because we do have multi-scale urban climate models which are able to simulate the complex urban environment. So we can test potential solutions and what the best arrangement of solutions or the best suit of solutions is before we actually go out and build a city or new neighborhood. And I think one thing that should get more attention is also that we should better consider behavioral aspects, which are often neglected. There is, as I mentioned before, much talk about nature-based solutions or engineering and technological solutions. But like all environmental problems, excess heat is also a people problem. So the question then becomes, what can we do to ensure that, for example, we use less energy? which then generates less waste heat? Or how can we live in buildings that are better adapted to the local climate so that our cities stay cool? So I think there's space for improvement in terms of our behavioral adaptation and our behavioral thinking. Thank you, Matthias. Ron, final word. What needs more attention as we address this problem over the coming decades? I agree with Matthias totally about the design of the city, so definitely. But I think also, from my perspective, the AC, HVAC industry really is not totally on board and understanding the impact that this industry has on climate. And actually, there will be no good climate without smart AC. That's the only way to achieve this. If you look today at the industry, I think it can do a lot more to connect with energy and with implementing Internet of Things and AI to air conditioning, both at the design phase and also at the operational phase, that's the main thing I would like to see changing because I think this will drive a lot of value if HVAC manufacturers focus on energy and AI in their design. I don't think that's where, where we should be. It's a traditional industry, it takes time, but 
I hope that in the next years, new models will come out that will already have more capabilities that they don't have today. Right. Ron, Matthias, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.